the farm where she lives now. She, um, my growing up years, I lived on the same farm she did. Uh, and then, uh, I don't know how old I was, in my early teens, they inherited my great-grandparents' farm, which was maybe 15 miles further south. And now, uh, in her old age, she lives down at the other farm. So I drove down, um, it's in Butler County, Pennsylvania, and I drove over there to see her. She lives in uh, what we would call like a little dotty house off of uh, my great-grandmother's house, and the big house is empty right now. Um, they're doing some renovations to it. I have a lot of good memories of that farm. It is where I would go when I was little. My parents were pretty free about letting me go to my grandparents in the summertime for a week at a time or two weeks at a time. And I liked that farm better than I liked the other farm. This farm, um, it had a lot of woods. It had a strip mine up back, so it had a, a pond where we could swim and fish. Um, it had a big bank barn, and we uh, spent many days building castles and houses in the haymow. It had a spring house, and that was a source of delights. My great-grandmother lived there at the time. Um, she was a proper old lady, and when you went to her house, you did not just barge in. You stood and you knocked, and you waited till she came. Um, she was a rather indulgent old lady. She would take you into her parlor and prop you up on the couch and feed you little pink candies about like this. Grandma candies, I don't know what they're called, but she would feed you grandma candies and you would visit. And then when you were done, she would fill your pockets and you would go back. One of the things that I recall about that farm was her strawberry patch. And I took note uh, this, this week when I was there, my grandma, not my great-grandma now, great-grandma's gone, but my grandma lives there in that little dotty house type thing. And she wanted me to dig some flowers to take back to Virginia for my wife she can hardly get around anymore, so she's downsizing all of her flower beds. So I was supposed to go behind the big house to a flower bed on the other side and dig a certain types of flowers. And when I went behind the house, um, behind that farmhouse, there's a little flat piece of ground, perhaps twice as wide as this aisle. And then the ground goes up a little bit, like a little bank, and then it gets flat again, and then it goes on up the hill, um, up back to the woods where the strip mine is. And along that bank, there's now a flower bed. But when I was a child, it was where my great-grandmother had her strawberries. The whole bank was cultivated, um, just not a high bank. It was maybe yay high, just a gradual slope down to this little flat spot behind the house. And it was mulched. And I can picture it in my mind yet today. Her flower bed was not like my wife's. My wife, or I'm sorry, her strawberry patch. My wife has her strawberries kind of in rows. But my great-grandmother did not. Her strawberries were single plants in a row. There was a plant, and then a space, and a plant, and a space, and a plant. And they were huge plants. Um, they were sort of her pride and joy, and I guess she 
babied them like some people do their children. They were large plants, and I always enjoyed going on the, in the summer, um, especially when strawberries were ready, because she would let me eat my fill. There was something else about that strawberry patch, which I did not know until many years later. I did not know this until after she had passed away. Uh, my grandparents, which would be her son and my grandma, told me something about the strawberry patch. My great-grandparents had been very poor at one point in their life. They were newly married in the, uh, right at the tail end of the 1800s. She was 18 years old and she was 13 years old. Um, they had very little uh, in the way of financial resources. After a period of years, they were able to scrape together enough resources that they bought this farm. And now they were uh, faced with the task of paying off the farm that they bought. They uh, farmed in a small way. They had cattle, and they had pigs and chickens and corn, just like it used to be in the old days, a little bit of everything. They bought their farm, and then one day, Grandpa came back from home, with, from town, with the sad news that the bank had closed. It was during the Great Depression, and what little money they did have was in the Butler National Bank. It had closed, it was insolvent, it never reopened, and they lost all of the little bit of money that they had. Well, what were they to do then? They had a farm payment. My grandfather left the farm um, in the sense that he got a job out. He got a job working, building roads. Uh, I recall he was paid $2 a day was his salary. He did chores in the morning before he left. And then during the day, my grandmother, she had two children at that time, um, with her two children, she did the field work. So she uh, drove the tractor and did whatever needed to be done. In the evenings, um, she started the milking, and then when he came home from work, he finished the evening milking, and then they repeated the next the same day. They managed to save their farm. They did not lose their farm like some of their neighbors lost their farms. They kept their farm. Later, in the 1950s, 1960s, somewhere along there, a coal company came along and asked to check their property for coal. Well, sure enough, there was coal, and they allowed the coal company to mine the one side of the farm. The farm sits in a little valley, and a little road goes down through the middle, and they had farm on both sides of the road, and the coal company signed a contract to mine the one side, and that's why there's a strip mine there today. So they got some money, more money than they ever had in their life. Their lifestyle never changed. Um, they ate the same food, wore the same type of clothes, um, made no significant improvements to the farm. Their life continued as usual. Well, back to the strawberry patch. What was special about the strawberry patch? I learned later, I was a teenager when I learned it, that there was a reason why she kept her strawberry plants separated. Underneath every strawberry plant was a glass jar. And in those jars was all of the money that they saved all of those years 
and all of the money that they got for mining coal on their property. When they received money, they would fill it a jar. They were not going to take it to the bank. They had tried that before and lost all their money. So all their life, they had a fear of taking money to the bank. You don't put money in the bank in town. You put money in the strawberry patch. You fill a jar, fasten a lid on, and you bury it under a strawberry patch. A couple of observations. Uh, they're just observations about financial life. Life involves work. These people had to work very hard to save their farm. You may have to work very hard. Perhaps you do already work hard. I don't know you, so I don't want to say you don't work hard. But some people have to work very hard. Some people have to work harder than you do in this world just to make a living. But we all probably need to work. Work is part of life. Second observation is that these people saved. They saved when they were poor, and they continued saving after they were not poor anymore. They were accustomed to saving, and if we understand the scripture right, it seems to indicate that a wise person does save. They saved instead of spending. They did have more money at the end of their life than they had at the beginning of their married life, but their lifestyle never changed. I think there is a lesson there that just because you have more money sometimes does not mean that you must spend the more money that you have. It doesn't necessarily have to go together that having more money equals spending more money. And the fourth observation um, is about investment. Once you work and you save, it is likely that you will have something to invest. Do you think there might be something better to do than to bury your money in a jar under a strawberry plant? Might there be a better thing that you could choose to do? Maybe so. I want to talk this evening about stewardship in general first, and then we're going to talk about money tonight a little bit. What is stewardship? Stewardship is recognizing that everything belongs to God. You can be an owner in this life, or you can be a steward. The scripture says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So God makes some pretty big statements in this verse. He says that he owns everything. Does God tell lies? He says he owns the world and everything in it, and he even owns all the people. That is pretty all-encompassing. He has laid claim to ownership of everything. I own everything that there is. Stewardship is also recognizing that money is a tool in the God-to-man relationship. Money is a tool. Money is not anything super or great. It's a tool just like a tractor is a tool, 
and a hammer and a Bosch mixer. Those are all tools. They're useful to have. Um, you use them to get things done that you want to get done. And money is the same way. Money is a tool, and it's a tool that God uses to do something. Why would I say that? Psalm 50 says, if I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. God just told you off. He said, if I needed anything, you would be the last person I would ask. You don't have a blessed thing that I need. I have everything that I need. Well, if God has everything that he needs, why does he spend so much space in scripture talking about money and possessions? Well, there must be a reason why. I think that money is a tool God uses to build a relationship with you. Why might that be true? Why is it that a mother would allow, like one of the girls that's up in these first couple rows here, why in the world would you let a little girl like that in your kitchen? If you let her help you make supper, bake bread, make cookies, I don't care what, if you let her in your kitchen, does it go better? Do you get done faster? Does it make for a neater job and quicker cleanup if you have a little girl helping you in the kitchen? No. You do not help, have little girls help you in the kitchen because they're just better at baking cakes than you are or because they're tidy or efficient. A mother has a little girl in the kitchen with her because she wants to spend time with her little girl and making supper or baking bread is just a means to the end. It doesn't matter if the kitchen is messier or if it takes more time. It doesn't matter if the girl makes mistakes. The purpose wasn't to get it perfect. The purpose was to spend time between mother and little girl. Why does a dad have a little boy help him mow grass? Because it's done neater and there are no skippers? No, a dad has a little boy help him mow grass because it's a relationship building thing. Why do you have a little boy help you in the shop do a project? Because he's so smart and so good at it? Or because you actually just need to spend some time with him? This needs to be done and we're gonna do this in a very practical way, spend time together. I think that's why God allows you to have money and stuff. He wants to, in a sense, spend time with you, and this is a way to get your attention, to focus you a little bit, and to teach you some things that you probably need to learn. A third thing about stewardship is that it is recognizing that God wants to use us to help build his kingdom. Scripture verse there, it says that we are laborers together with God. You are a worker with God. And that's pretty generous of God to kind of frame it in those terms that you're working with God. You're actually kind of way down here and he's way up here, but he benevolently says you're working with me. 
just like the mom tells the little girl, you're helping me. No, you're not helping me. You're slowing me down. You're making a big mess. But I like to spend time with you, so it's okay. You're helping me. You're helping dad in the shop or in the barn. You're helping dad with the grass. Well, really, they're not helping all that much. But the dad, the mom, God is accomplishing their real purpose. They're getting to spend time with you and teach you things. We are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. And it's interesting, God uses two very practical examples. I think most of us can understand, regardless of what occupation our family might be involved in. Husbandry, that has to do with farming, gardening. And God's building, construction. No, between farming and gardening, gardening, and construction, most of us can sort of understand what God's talking about. God says, you are my garden. You're my farm. You are my fixer-upper project. God wants to invest in you. And he's going to use money, and he's going to use the stuff that you have to focus your attention, to spend some time with you, and to teach you some things. In your Bibles, uh, you could turn to Matthew 25 or Luke 19 if you wanted to find what I call the stewardship parables. These are um, stories that Jesus told. Parables are simply short stories that Jesus told to illustrate a spiritual lesson. And if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to one or the other. It doesn't matter which one you turn to. It is essentially the same story told in two of the different Gospels. We often call this the parable of the talents, but uh, I think it illustrates pretty good lessons about stewardship, understanding that everything belongs to God, that money and stuff, they are tools that God uses to build a relationship with us, and that we are simply God's projects. We're his farm, um, where he delights to work, or where his fixer-upper project, that he can see something down the road that he thinks you're worth investing in and improving. There are at least seven principles I find here. This is a story that Jesus told. If you want to read this in your devotions, read one chapter the one day and read the other passage another day, you'll find out it is the same story. There are a few details that are different in the story, I think that can be accounted for simply because I think it was one of Jesus, um, I would say, stock stories. As he traveled from place to place, this was a story that he probably told five or six or 20 different times. And um, here we have Matthew recording one telling of it and maybe Luke recording a different telling of it. Same basic story. There was a rich guy. Do you know any rich guys? Do they have any rich guys in Lebanon County? I suppose they have some. Maybe there are even some in this church. I don't know. You know the church that you go to. You can think about who's here. Who are the rich people here? And you could probably write some names down. But in the story that Jesus told, there was a rich guy. And the rich guy needed to go away on a trip. He evidently expected to be gone for some period of time 
because he appointed three of his servants to take care of his stuff while he was gone. Um, that's being responsible. If you're going to go away from work or you're going to go away from your farm for more than a short period of time, um, you ought to have somebody in charge to keep the thing going. This rich guy did the responsible thing and he picked out three fellas. You right there and you right there and that fella right there. Y'all come. I need to talk to you. I'm going to be gone for a while. Um, here's your responsibilities. You take care of this and then I'm going to come back. You'll notice that the ownership never transferred. Everything belonged to the rich guy at the beginning of the story and at the end of the story. But he had servants who acted as stewards. A steward is a person who takes care of someone else's things for them for a period of time. Seven principles I find here. One is that there's a master-servant relationship in life. There is one master in life. At least there is one good master. The scripture does indicate you can pick between two. One of the masters in life is good and kind and benevolent. The other is hateful and spiteful, but you can pick which one you want to serve. You will not be able to serve both of them. It is an either or choice. This master or that master, but there is gonna be a master in your life. You're going to pick a master and then you're going to be a servant or a steward of this master or of this master. The second principle is the idea of ownership. Someone did own everything. Definition I use for ownership is power and control. If you own something, you have the right to say what happens with that thing. When you came here this evening, perhaps some of you walked if you lived close, but I imagine most of you drove a vehicle. When Vacation Bible School is over this evening, you do not just exit the building, go to the closest vehicle, get in, drive down the road, um, stop at the first house you come to, go in, kick your shoes off, help yourself to the fridge, go upstairs, brush your teeth, and roll into bed. We have this idea that the cars, the vehicles, the trucks out in the parking lot, they all are owned by somebody. And you should take yours. You do not take the first one you come to. You take the one that you brought. When you go down the road, you don't stop at the first house you come to or to the one that looks the nicest. You are supposed to go to your house. You are supposed to eat out of your refrigerator I eat out of my refrigerator. When you go to brush your teeth, you should not use my toothbrush. You have your toothbrush, which you use. And when I roll into my bed, you should not be in it. We have this idea, don't we? It's actually a biblical idea of ownership. Somebody is responsible to exercise power and control over just about everything there is in life. Ownership. A steward is taking care of someone else's things. And it's a privilege to be chosen for that role. The third and fourth principles are first cousins to each other, trust and expectations. This story that Jesus told was told how many years ago? 
2,000 years ago, give or take? It's a long time ago. When the master went on a long journey 2,000 years ago, his servants did not have a cell phone number. If something came up three days after the master left, they could not call him, text him, and ask for advice. They could not email him. They couldn't even fax him. They probably were unable to send him a letter because they probably didn't know where he was or have any efficient way to get it there and get it back in any meaningful time frame. He was out of communication when he was gone. If you put someone in charge of your things, you must trust that person if you're actually going to leave decision-making in their hands. Maybe sometimes when you go away, if you're a married person here, you leave your children somewhere. You leave them with someone else so that you can go to town or go on a little vacation, you know, husband and wife together, go away on a little trip. Well, who do you leave your children with? You don't randomly drive down the road and drop them off and tell them to go into some house and we'll be back after a while to get you. No. If you leave children somewhere, you only leave them with someone you would trust. And you trust that person to do lots of things. That they will keep the child from playing in the middle of the road. They will make the child behave reasonably. If the child gets hungry, they'll feed the child. If the diaper needs changed, they would change the diaper. You trust them to take care of something that's actually pretty valuable to you. And I think the same thing filters right down to like your money and your stuff. Where do you put your money? Do you give it to disreputable people? Shady looking characters? No. If you invest money somewhere, it's because, right or wrong, you trusted the place where you invested the money. If you have a business or a farm and you need to be gone for a, a little bit, who do you ask to do work for you? To watch the shop, to run the shop, to do the chores. You would only ask somebody that you trusted to do the work. If you think about all the things that God has trusted you to take care of, it's actually a pretty big list, isn't it? You have life and health. And I assume most of you have a sound mind. That is more than everyone in life has. You have a measure of health. Some of you are healthier than other people are, but you've been given allowed to have health. You have family. Not everyone in the world has family. You have friends and you have church. And not everyone has that. You have free access to God's word. You can read it as much as you please or as little as you please, but you have it. And that's more than many people have. Probably most of you have a godly heritage. You didn't um, grow up on the street or in a home where God's name was used as a curse word. You grew up from little, going to church, hearing about God, 
and learning the difference between right and wrong. You have been given pretty much. And on top of all of that, you live in the richest and freest country on earth, and you live in a rather prosperous part of that country. You have money, and you have stuff. Of all the things that you have been trusted with, the money and the stuff are at the bottom of the list, if you're ranking your list by importance. Because there's far more important things than money. And maybe you can make your own list of all the things that God has trusted you to have. I think um, spiritual things would be at the top, people are next, and then earthly things like money and farms and businesses, they are on the list. God did trust you to have and to take care of those things, but they're pretty far down the list in order of importance. The scripture says that God has pretty high expectations for the people that he trusts to take care of his things. The scripture says, unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. So, if you were raised in a Christian home, and you have access to God's word, and you have a church, and you have family, and you have friends, and you have children, and you have a job, and you have some money and some stuff, you have been given pretty much to take care of. Therefore, you can probably expect that when we get to the judgment, when it is your turn to stand before God, you will be standing there for a very long time while he talks to you about how you did with all of these things that you got that not everybody got. You will need to explain yourself. You will have lots of explaining to do. The fifth principle in the parable is the idea of absence. The rich guy went away. And as I said, in the story that Jesus told, think about those listeners. 2,000 years ago, rich guy goes away into a far country. They understood there was going to be very little communication back and forth. These people that were left in charge were going to have to make lots of decisions on their own. Uh, this is not a perfect analogy because we know that God never goes away from us, does he? Um, even though God is in heaven and you are upon the earth, God is available to you 24 hours a day through the avenue of prayer. You can talk to God. God left you his word. So you have his principles, kind of like an instruction book. When you have a question about what you should do with his stuff, you can look in the instruction book, and you can probably find something there that would help you make decisions. God gives us his principles, but he leaves everyday decisions in your hands. It does not happen, I don't think, that God shouts down from heaven and tells you to get out of bed in the morning. He doesn't tell you to go to work. You don't hear audible voices from God telling you not to buy something when you're in a store. He gave you his principles, but then he leaves the everyday decisions in your hands. I think, in a sense, God allows himself to be absent. He takes one step back from your life, and he lets you make some decisions. You can ask for advice, and he said he'll give it if you ask, but he actually allows you to make decisions. The sixth principle is the principle of return. 
the master goes away, but the master comes back. And we know that Jesus Christ is coming back someday. And following that, there will be the judgment, number seven, there will be consequences. There are two types of consequences in the story Jesus told. For those who did well, there was commendation and blessing. For those who did not do well, the consequences were somewhat different than that. Question for you. Now let's lay that aside, and I want you to kind of get practical. You can close your eyes if you think better with your eyes closed. Um, how much money does it take to be rich? You come up with an answer in your head. I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud, but I'd like you to come up with an answer in your head. Just how much money does it take to be rich? Generally, the answer people come up with is more than I have. And it does not matter how much they have. To be rich, you would need to have more than I have because I'm not rich. Let's talk about money a little bit here in practical terms. Um, the statistics that I'm using tonight are from 2016. I had pulled this together from Census Bureau information in 2018 using 2017 numbers I look back and check, the numbers have not significantly changed in the next year of data that's available, but I had all this down and I didn't think it was worth my time to change it for the modest difference there was. So we're gonna stick with this information. This is information that's um, two years old, two year old data now. Median household income in the United States was $59,039. What does median mean? Median means middle, and this is household income. So it's, it's a household unit, people living together in one dwelling. To, to figure out, you know, to get a picture of this, you would have to imagine that across the front of this room, we have lined up every family in America. And we lined them up from the poorest family in America to the richest family in America. Now, we are talking about income here, and I want to explain the difference between income and wealth. But on the basis of income, the family that earns the least amount of money is standing over here, way against this wall. The American family that earns more than anybody else is standing all the way against that wall, and then smushed in between them is every other family in America from the smallest amount of income to the greatest amount of income. If you would go, this is according to the US Census Bureau, if you would go to the exact middle of the line and pull that family out, they earned $59,039 in 2016. That's the middle. So where are you? What's your household income? Combine all the people who live in the house where you live so dad, mom, any of the children that are working and making money, add that all together, is it more or less than $59,000? Well, you now know which side of middle you're on because 59,000 was the middle. 
about 30% of American households earn under $30,000. About 20% of American households earn over $100,000. I did break this down uh, a little bit further just to kind of um, help you sort out where you're at. If, if you're sitting here, maybe you're a young person and you don't know how much your dad makes, you go home tonight and just kind of take him and shake him a little bit and say, Dad, the preacher said I'm supposed to ask you how much we make because I want to know where our family sits in this whole scenario and um, if you can keep it confidential, maybe he'll tell you. Where do you rank? This is using IRS data. Again, this is from 2014. This is the best year I could find IRS data from. The rest was kind of fragmentary, and I'm not sure why I couldn't find the same information for a more recent year. But in 2014, if you earned over $521,411, you were in the top 1% in America. You know, we hear about the top 1%. Who are they? Well, they're the people who make a little bit over half a million dollars a year. That's what it takes in America to be in the top 1%. Well, if you make $148,687, you're in the top 10% of income-earning families in America. And remember, this is household income. This is everybody that lives in that house added together. Dad, mom, all the teenage, unmarried children, all of them added together. If your household income was $148,687, you can inflate that a little bit, let's say about $149,000, $150,000 this year, you are in the top 10% of income earners in the United States. Uh, if you earn $100,000 a household, you're in the top 20%. And then that data, three years prior, they pegged the middle at 54. Okay, the U.S. Census Bureau data three years later was 59. So these numbers, they give us an idea about where the scale is. I would like you to go home, and if you're a husband and wife, you can answer this together. You are not going to have to report your answers tomorrow evening. But I would like you to know, where are you? Are you in the top half? Are you in the bottom 30% that's making under 30,000 a year? Are you in the top 20%, the top 10%? Might there be someone in your community that's in the top 1% of income earners in the United States? Where do you actually sit as far as income earned? Scripture says comparing ourselves among ourselves is unwise. Where I'm starting to go with this is that you are the rich people. You know that? You are the rich people. When the Bible talks about rich people, it's talking about you. The things that it has to say to the rich people, it's talking about you. We should think not just, okay, well, where do I, I'm not the richest person at Myerstown Mennonite. I'm not the richest person in Lebanon County. But where do you sit maybe globally? The best number that I could find comes from a 2017 study 
If you earn $32,400, you are in the top 1% of income earners in the world. You know, we have to include all the poor countries, not just the rich countries like America and Canada and, West and Germany. We have to include everybody in the world if we want to know where we actually sit. So, you know, when you go home tonight and as a family, you say, okay, you can't tell anyone, but this is how much money we made last year. If it was more than $32,400 last year, you are in the top 1% of income earners in the world. You are the rich people. Anything that it says the rich people are responsible for, you are responsible for. We're going to look at some of those. Do understand that income and wealth are not the same thing. Um, you can make a lot of money and not be very wealthy. You can make not very much money and be wealthy. What is income? Income is what you earn. And I just use the word opportunity. It's what you have the ability to get. You have a job that would pay this much. You have a business that throws off this much income. You have a farm that can produce this. Your income is your opportunity. Do we all have the same opportunity? No. I doubt there are two people in this room who have the exact same amount of income. Opportunity. That's going to vary between me and you. What is wealth? Money, um, income is the money that comes into your hands. Wealth is what sticks to your hands. You know that most of the money you get doesn't stick, does it? It goes through your hands. You earn money and then you buy your groceries and the money goes on down the road. You earn money and you pay for the car that you drive and that money goes on down the road to somebody else. What sticks to your hands? That's what your wealth is. There are people in life that have very high incomes. Um, years ago when we were young married, I ran a small um, construction type um, firm and we worked kind of in an upper end market. One of our um, regular clients, we would work for months a year at her house, year after year, uh, was a Mrs. So-and-so. And Mrs. So-and-so was the wife of the chief surgeon in um, the part of the state where we lived, the hospital system. He was high up the pecking order in the local medical community. Undoubtedly, he had a very high income. Occasionally, we had problems cashing her checks because they spent every two weeks is what they got paid. Every two weeks, they spent everything they made. And sometimes their checks bounced. They had very high income, but very low wealth. There are other people who never in their lifetime made much money, but they were savers. They were thrifty. The money stuck to their fingers, and although you would have thought they were poor people, 
when they died or when it became known, they actually were wealthier than you were. And here you thought they never actually made anything of themselves in life. They were just thrifty people. Who are the rich people? Okay, you should know the answer by now. You are the rich people. You are the people the Bible is talking about in this scripture passage. You have your Bibles turned to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And actually, I did a bad thing. I left my Bible in my car. So I'm going to ask somebody to stand and read these verses for us, 17 through 19. Someone willing to do that? Nice and loud so everyone can hear. Thank you. Charge them that are rich. The word charge is the word for command. So Paul tells Timothy, you command the rich people. You don't ask them. You don't suggest to them. You don't make a recommendation. You order them to do certain things. So I think God, through the Apostle Paul, is ordering you people to do certain things you best pay attention to what he says. Because you remember the story about the rich man who trusted his servants to take care of his things. He comes back someday, and when he comes back, you stand in front of him and you explain yourself what you did with the things that he allowed you to have while he was gone. What does it say here? It says, charge them that are rich in this world, you people, to be not high-minded. It's interesting to me, in the Greek, um, these words are repeated twice. In the Greek, it says, you charge them to be not high-minded, be not high-minded. Don't have a big head about this. I think, um, I'm going to add, this is my interpretation now, so you're not... Hearing the gospel here, you're hearing what Richie thinks God was intending to say. God is saying, don't you think for a minute that you deserve what you have. I allowed you to be born into this family. I allowed you to be born into this country. I allowed you to have these skills and talents. I set you up to be in this position. Don't even begin to think that you're where you are because you deserve it. Don't have a big head about who you are or what you've accumulated in life because you didn't have a whole lot to do with it. I put you in a position. 
I gave you what you have to work with. Be it much or be it modest, I put you in the position you are. Do not get a big head about this. What is the second thing that he says? He says, do not trust in uncertain riches. This means do not put your hope in them. Do not think that this will undoubtedly last forever. It will always be this way. That I will always have what I have. That my future is safe because I have this much money. Or because I have a farm. Or I've built a business. So I've looked out for myself. I'm going to be able to take care of my family. There was someone in scripture who thought like that. Remember the fool? I've got much goods laid up for many years. I will just take my ease. And God said, thou fool. You're a fool for thinking like that. So two instructions. Don't be high-minded about whatever it is you have. If you, if you are worth $6,000, don't get a big head over it. If you're worth $600,000, doesn't have much to do with you, so don't be proud of it. God gave you this ability, and you'll be held responsible for it. Number two, don't put your trust in it. Never put your trust in land, businesses, or money. What are you supposed to do? It says to do good. This means to make good things happen. I gave you this money because you are supposed to be making good things happen. God has lots of work that he wants to have done. His money is sitting in your checkbook and he expects you to be getting this work done with the money he's allowing you to have for a while. It says, be rich in good works. Those are actual deeds, like a list of things that you actually did with what he allowed you to have. If you're going to be rich, you should be rich in a long list of things that you were able to do with the good things that God allowed you to have. It says, be ready to distribute. And that's the idea of imparting, of... Um, and it follows right on, it says willing to communicate, willing to share. You rich people, you ought to be really quick when you hear about a need, your hand just involuntarily reaches back to your wallet. It just starts back there and right into your purse and you just reach for your checkbook. It's just automatic because you know that the rich people are supposed to be ready to distribute now, that doesn't mean to foolishly distribute, but they're ready. They don't have any inhibition about giving to real needs. They are willing to communicate, to share liberally. And it says what they do, you rich people, if you do these things, it says you will lay up in store for yourselves a good foundation. If you do these things, if you are not proud of whatever it is you have, little or much, if you do not put your trust in what you have been allowed to have, be it little or much, if you are looking to do good things with what you have, 
be it little or much. If you are ready to distribute, willing to share with other people, whether you have little or much, the scripture says that you have made a good investment in the future. God's going to look at what you did, and he said, you are pretty smart. You have made a pretty good investment with what I allowed you to have. And hopefully, that will be the answer you get. It is not in doubt whether or not you will stand before God someday. You will stand there. I don't have any doubt that you are the rich people. This passage applies to you. We're going to look at a little more of this passage tomorrow night. We have about four minutes till we're supposed to quit. I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, a study that was done of millionaires. Two sociologists undertook a um, multi-year study of people who actually are millionaires. Um, most of you probably are not millionaires, but they studied people who were. Stanley and Danko, um, very famous study. It's published in the book, The Millionaire Next Door. You can buy that on Amazon if you're interested in reading about money. Um, that's a good book to read, The Millionaire Next Door by Stanley and Danko. Did you know that in the United States, 80% of millionaires are first-generation rich people? They are not like Donald Trump who inherited money. They did not inherit money. Actually, Stanley and Danko found that 80% of people who are millionaires in the United States, their study was in the 1980s, are first-generation millionaires. Their parents were not rich. Their parents might have been middle class or might have been poor. Their parents were not rich. In fact, half of the millionaires in the United States never inherited one dollar from their parents or grandparents. Hmm. You think the rich people inherited it, didn't you? Half of them didn't inherit one dollar from their parents or grandparents. How'd they get rich? Two-thirds, well, you know, they're like Donald Trump. They're big wheeler dealers. No. Two-thirds of the millionaires in the United States have what are called dull occupations. They are carpenters. They run stores. They have a company that delivers portajohns. They do very ordinary things. But you know what they do? They work hard. And they work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and sometimes on Saturday, and then on Monday they go back and they do it again. And they save. The average millionaire in the United States his entire life has been a 20% net saver. 20 cents on every dollar went into savings. And even after he's a millionaire, he continues to save 20%. How much are you saving out of every dollar? I don't think it should be your goal in life to become a millionaire, but millionaires are people just like you. They are people who do very ordinary things. They work hard. They save. We'll talk about it a little bit more tomorrow night.